following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Somebody at the break caught me and said, man, you know, just so we don't have to, like, you know, figure people out, can we have, like, you know, early service sit over here and late service sit over here? And, you know, that way everybody kind of see one another. Uh, it's so funny. We were over here. A bunch of us are scrambling. How many of you noticed that Bruce isn't here, right? I mean, I know. Where's our greeter? Bruce is caught up at his uh, house because of the weather. And he, I can guarantee you, if he's watching online, he is sick because he, he's probably shaking hands with, you know, with Patsy and, you know, the dog and, you know, I mean, I mean, he's, I mean, he's just doing it, right? So, man, what a gift. Guys, thank you. What a, what a joy to be together, um, in one place. And, if you're new with us, it's obvious that you're new because there's more of us here than we thought we're going to be here, right? So thank you for coming. Uh, thanks for being with us. And um, it is our joy to welcome you to our church and welcome you to our home, and uh, at least temporarily. Um, and what the Lord is doing among us has been nothing short of amazing. Um, I think that we all at CLF would just recognize very clearly that this is God's doing this is nothing that we do. And you're going to notice that because the preaching isn't all that good and neither is the singing. Um, we just simply want to celebrate one name and his name is Jesus. And uh, we are so glad. Our confidence, our hope is in Christ and in the power of God's word. It's not in us. And so we are so glad for what God is doing. Um, so let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to uh, the book of Genesis this morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 9. Uh, and so everything good there, Pear? Are you getting me lined up? Okay. We're working through challenges, so, you know, bear with us. Uh, Perry won't be doing calisthenics in front of you, thank God. Um, but he will be getting a few things done. You know, one of the things that we've seen in our study of Genesis has been the origin and the beginning of all things. Um, we've noticed this with the purpose of work. We saw that work was in the Garden of Eden. We saw gender and gender roles in the Garden of Eden. We saw marriage being instituted in the Garden of Eden. And we saw a myriad of other things that we just just marveled at how God started all things back in, the, back in creation. We just looked at these things. But have you ever wondered, what about natural things that we see? What about things like a rainbow? Right? I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Lucky Charms. Anybody else? Right? Uh, that little cereal with marshmallows on it. Here's a picture of the Lucky Charms box. Um, that is a creepy looking elf. I mean, I, you know, I have to imagine. But, you know, this, this, the funny thing about Lucky Charms is when you look at the box, what do you see? You see this rainbow with all these little marshmallow treats in it, and it could cause you as a kid to think to yourself, if I was at the end of the rainbow with the leprechaun, I'd find Lucky Charms treats, right? I mean, rather than what the Irish folklore says that we're going to find a pot of gold. Right? And you'll find, if you were to do some research on the rainbow, not just what you see in our current culture, but all around the world, you're going to find that current cultures and other cultures think the rainbow is a variety of different things. But why did God give us a rainbow? If you've ever seen a vivid rainbow in the sky, it's, it's not hard to be mesmerized and wonder if you could find some lucky charms at the end, right? But have you ever wondered why God gave us a rainbow? Let me ask you another question, though. Have you ever looked around your world and wondered, why is God so patient? Have you ever looked around and wondered, 
when is God going to judge this place? Have you ever wondered when is God's mercy going to run out? You see all this stuff going on in your world around you, and it's easy to begin to think, God must be getting awfully sick of what he's seeing, and God's going to come and judge this place. Well, this morning, we're going to find out about the rainbow. We're also going to find out why God, listen clearly, is not alarmed, and God is not shocked, and he is most certainly not impatient. That's what we're going to see this morning. Now, here's what we're going to see. Here's the big idea. If you come to our church very often, you know what the big idea is. If you're new with us, we give a big idea at the beginning of the sermon, and the goal is just to see something that maybe in the text that you'll see. And here's what I hope we'll see this morning. God blesses and cares for his creation with patience and grace. His covenant with Noah is a promise of God's common grace. God blesses and cares for his creation with patience and grace. His covenant with Noah is a promise of God's common grace. Here's what we're going to marvel at this morning, Lord willing. That the rainbow is not just a scientific marvel and a moment when the sun hits the rain just right and we can see all these various colors. The the rainbow is a sign. It's a sign of God's faithfulness and a sign of God's grace. It's a picture of God's patience. It's a promise from God that he will bless and care for his creation. It's a promise that God will be gracious, listen clearly, to all creatures and all humanity. And he calls on us as his people to do the same. So would you stand with me as we read Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. In our church, we stand at the reading of God's Word, because we believe that God's Word is inspired, it is God-breathed, and it is authoritative. This is the reading of God's Word from Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. In your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds... 
I will remember my covenant that I that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true, that it is inspired, that it's God-breathed. And we believe with all of our hearts that the power and the authority is in your word, not in our spoken words. And we ask you, Lord, to empower the preaching this morning, illumine our hearts to the gospel and the power of Christ and the wonder of your grace to all creatures, and may we leave here today different people because we've encountered the risen the risen Christ. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> That's a different sound, isn't it? The squeaking of the chairs. I mean, let's get used to that one for a minute. I mean, it's, you know, at least I didn't hear anybody say, oh, I missed my seat. I mean, you know, I've been a little worried about that one for a bit, right? <clears throat> now, just for a moment, imagine the scene in Genesis chapter 9. Because of the evil on the earth, God decided to judge the earth with a massive flood. In that flood, everything that breathed died, except for eight people. Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their wives. They were inside a huge ark or a boat that they'd built, and animals of every kind were in the boat with them. When the flood stopped and the ground dried out, Noah and his family and all the animals with him came off the ark. And the moment that Noah's feet touched dry ground, Noah worshipped God with sacrifices. We saw that last week. And we saw that God did all that he did because he saw that the wickedness on earth was was full. I mean, there there was wickedness everywhere, but God saw that Noah was a man full of faith in the one true God. So the moment we're going to study this morning is directly after this moment when Noah offers these sacrifices to God. It is a monumental moment in human history. And as we'll see, it's a moment when God promises to care for all creation with patience and grace. And we need this. As Christians, we need this. We need this because we need to understand God's patience. See, we're probably more impatient than God is. And we need to learn more of God's patience so we can apply more of God's patience to our own Lives. We also need it because we need to marvel and just be amazed at God's common, normal, everyday work among all people and all creatures. So you, you should be seeing God at work every moment of every day because of God's common, everyday work that He is doing everywhere. And we need this because we need to become people who are much more patient and much more understanding. We need it because we need to be better stewards of God's created things that he's given us and what he has provided. And we need this, listen, so that we can we can understand how we need to interact with those who might disagree with us or with people who might live differently than us or, to be honest, people who irritate us that you might be sitting next to right now, right? I mean, we need this word from God. 
This is why it's so important for us. Now, again, here's the big idea that we want to capture this morning. God blesses and cares for his creation with patience and grace. His covenant with Noah is a promise of God's common grace. Now, in your outline, you'll see there's just two points because the text is laid out very easily in two points. In verses 1 through 7, we'll see a point, and in verses 8 through 17, we'll see a point. So let's look at our first point, which is the new world. We'll see this in verses 1 through 7. If you were an original recipient of Genesis written by Moses, you would remember that on the sixth day, God made man in his image, and he named that man Adam, or man, and Adam is our first father. But something happened after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, and after they had children. We're told in Genesis chapter 5 that they died. And you might think if you're reading Genesis chapter 5, if you're an original reader and hearer of this letter, or even as we read Genesis 5 and studied it a few weeks ago, everybody is dying. Every time you read another person in the list of Genesis 5, they died except for a man named Enoch. You might especially wonder this when you read Genesis 6 through Genesis 8 and you see the story of the flood. Everybody is gone. Judgment has come. What is God going to do because God started this earth and how is he going to finish it? We're told at the end of Genesis chapter 8 after the flood that day and night will remain the same. Meaning there's going to be rhythm and pace and seasons and harvest and all these various things that were normal to life. But one question that doesn't really get answered yet in the book of Genesis is, what is God going to do with humanity after the flood? How is he going to treat humans after the flood? How is God going to have humans fulfill what God told them to do originally in the Garden of Eden? How will God rebuild with man? Well, the passage before us in chapter 9 of Genesis tells us how. A.P. Ross wrote this about this text. The expository idea of the entire narrative could be worded as follows. In other words, this is A.P. Ross's big idea. If I took it, you'd know that I was plagiarizing. So this is what he said. God will judge the wicked with severe and catastrophic judgment, listen to this, in order to start life over with a worshiping community. And what you read in Genesis chapter 9 is something fascinating. God started over with a new man, and his name is Noah. He started over with a new community who represented all of humanity, which was Noah's family. And throughout the text, you're going to notice how God recreates through Noah's family and targeting us in the 21st century. The first way you're going to notice is that God starts over is in procreations or procreation or through humans multiplying. You can see this in verse 1 and verse 7. It's, it's kind of funny that those two verses are like brackets to God recreating through Noah and his family. In other words, God's basically telling them, you better understand this. This is how I'm going to replenish the earth. This is a repeated command of God to humans to fulfill and multiply. In the creation account of Genesis chapter 1, you'll remember if you've been with us or you can look back in your Bible and see it, this command was given to Adam and Eve within the bounds of marriage. In the beginning, God gave humans, listen clearly, the joy and intimacy of marriage 
And one of the joys of marriage, which we will all say amen to, is procreating other humans. That's a adult way of saying it because we have kids in the room. Okay? This didn't change when God judged the earth. As a matter of fact, I want you to marvel at something for a moment. God's institution of marriage and the joys of marital intimacy, listen, are remnants of the Garden of Eden before the fall. Now just think about that for a moment. Your marriage and the joy you have in your marriage and the children that have been produced from that marriage are a remnant of the Garden of Eden. They're a remnant of paradise. That God has given you something to hang on to and hold on to and and love it dearly and closely because it's a remnant of what God originally mandated in the earth. What a great joy. If you want to know why we do a marriage retreat, that's one of the reasons. It's, It's to be held in high honor before God. In Noah's time, even though humans had fallen and are sinful in their hearts, notice something, the command is still given to us. And it's given to us multiple times to help us understand we must grasp this. God still gives us marriage and marital intimacy to procreate. It's one of the ways he's recreating the world through Noah. That's remarkably important because in your world today, what do people want to do with marriage? They want to push it aside. What do they want to do with having babies? They want to push it aside. See, producing life, new life, is important to God and should be to us as humans. And protecting marriage should be important to us because it is important to God. Don't miss this in the recreation scene. But there's a second way that God recreated with Noah, and it was in provision. Notice verses 2 and 3 with me in the text. Before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden against God, animals and plants worked with them in joyful harmony. But something fascinating happened. Once sin entered the world, there was immediate conflict. And you're going to notice one of the conflicts in Genesis 3 is that the ground begins to produce thorns and thistles. What we're not told about, which we can imply in the text, is that the animals became hostile as well. But notice that God told Noah, because the fear and dread of humans would be upon every beast of the field, every bird of the field, every reptile, every fish, God was giving all of these animals into Noah's hands, and everything that moved on the earth was his for food. In other words, one of the ways that God provided for humans in this new created world was through meat that he would get, we would get from animals. And those of you who love to eat meat would say, amen to that, right? I mean, I got a dinner engagement at my house tonight and we're smoking tri-tip. Amen for that, right? Originally, God told Adam and Eve that plants in the garden would be their food. But notice what God does now. He adds to their diets and he provides everything they needed in this recreation. But there's a third way that God recreates with through Noah. And that's found in protection. You'll see this in verses 4 through 6, but I want you to notice verse 4 with me first. The ability of man to take animals for food was not only a provision, but listen, it was a protection. Due to the hostility of animals, God put the fear of man in them to keep them at bay. But he also allowed man to take some of those same hostile animals for food. So in, in providing for man through meat, God was also protecting man through meat. 
But humans were not allowed to do some particular things. They were not allowed to eat the blood of the animals while they were alive. It's fascinating when I was reading this to hear about various cultures that some of them might be, say, nomadic, and as they're on these roads to go to different places, as they're moving, they would literally just cut out a part, say, a hip muscle portion of an animal and eat it while the animal was still alive. And God very clearly says, don't, don't do such things because, and the reason for that is, there's a few reasons, but one of them is the blood of animals carried various diseases and bacteria. And God told Noah not to eat the blood of living animals as a way, listen, of protecting human life and even animal life. And in this warning, God was protecting animals from unnecessary abuse and indiscriminate killing while at the same time, protecting humans from eating and taking in bacteria or something that might harm them. Kenneth Matthews wrote this, Animal life, though given to humanity for sustenance, remained valuable in the eyes of God as a living creature and therefore merited proper care, not wanton abuse. This privilege of killing animals for food assumed, assumed the responsibility of caring for animal life as it was first formulated in Eden. See, God was protecting humans from animals, and if necessary, protecting animals from humans. But there's one last protection in the text that I don't want you to miss. It's not just humans and animals and their hostility toward one another, or animals toward man. It's also protecting us from hostility from one another. Notice what verses 5 and 6 tell us. If one human intentionally took the life of another human, God would require that human life to be taken. Whoever sheds the blood of man or humans, by that human who took that life, his blood should be shed as well. Notice the reason. Because God made man in his image. Friends, listen carefully. Image bearers are not to be murdered. Image bearers in the womb all the way to the tomb are not to be murdered. They are to be protected. And according to God's word is, those murderers who took the life, that life is required. Now this would be important. Imagine reading Genesis chapter 4 and reading the story of Cain murdering his brother Abel in Genesis 4 and then reading God's provision for meat to take animals and Kill animals for our sustenance. Humans could get the wrong idea that we could just take life whenever we wanted. But notice what A.P. Ross wrote. We thus learned that humankind does not have unlimited power over life. Let me read that again. We thus learned that humankind does not have unlimited power over life. Now think about that in a world that says, it's my choice, my body, I can do what I want with that baby inside of me. We thus learn that humankind does not have unlimited power over life just because God does. God's warnings in this section taught people to safeguard life, both in how they ate meat and in how they preserved human life on the earth. Man cannot and should not take life indiscriminately. God put limits on that in his recreation. So what you're seeing in... The text is God recreating his new creation through procreation, through providing for it and protecting it. Now, there's, there's a few things in these short verses we simply cannot ignore. 
The first thing we can't ignore is when God recreated and started over with Noah, we cannot miss that this is God's way of preserving the Genesis 3.15 champion that we have seen from the beginning of this book. As we saw earlier in Genesis, even though humans sinned against God, God still had the plan to save us. And his plan was that he would send a champion to crush our enemy's head. In other words, when you're reading Genesis chapter 9, here's what you're reading. Sin will not have the final say. The champion will still come. God started over with a man who was, we could call him, the second Adam. We'll see this all over the Bible. We see it in creation when God gave us Adam. We see it in the, after the flood when God gave us Noah. We're going to see it in Genesis 11, then to Genesis 12 in a man named Abram. We're going to see it later on in a guy named King Saul and his rebellion, and it's going to land in a guy's lap named King David. All of these men were portraits of the, or types of the last Adam to come, whose name is Jesus Christ, who will once for all conquer our sin, dominate our adversary, and he will completely satisfy the judgment of God on our behalf. Do not miss when God started over with Noah that God is preserving the line to this champion. Don't miss that. And you can say amen to that. It's okay. All right? But also we see something else, not just this line being restored. I want you to notice something else in the text that's fascinating. We see the origin or the beginning of civil or human government. And our need to care for one another and God's provision of giving us judgment on evildoers by a human government. This is fascinating. We cannot hurt our fellow humans without consequences. This is one reason why we have civil government in the world. You're going to notice something in Romans 13 that's fascinating, that God gave us government and gave us government officials. Why? For the protection of the innocent and punishing evildoers. So when you hear your world shouting to you, abolish the police, or we'll say it this way, even for some of my conservative friends who would say, get rid of the government. We don't need government. You must see that through the lens of the biblical text of God's creation and God's design. Civil government, police, our armed forces, if you will, are means of God's grace to our world. For what reason? Because God gave us government for protection. And he calls each of us not to be like Cain, who did not see himself as his brother's keeper, because in God's economy, all humans are to be each other's brother's keeper. All humans are to have each other's backs. We're all to care for one another and for our creation. But there's another thing I think it's important we see in Genesis 9, 1 through 7. It's important to see the kindness and care of God on his creation. See, Moses' hearers could get the wrong idea about God, and so could we. We would read about God's judgment in the flood, and it would be easy for us to think that all God, God doesn't care, and God just wants us as humans to just live in our rot and our misery. I hear that from Christians periodically, that God is just wanting to just send judgment upon us, and he's going to be happy when he does so. But that's not what we see here. Even though humans still have hearts that are sinful from the womb, notice, God cares for his creation. He provides the joy of marriage and marital intimacy and the blessing of children. He provides meat. Praise God for that, right? He provides vegetables like broccoli and peas. Shocking 
And He provides that for us as humans. He protects animals from indiscriminate killing, and He requires judgment on those who rebelliously take life. Why does God do this? Because God cares about what He created. Don't miss this in the text. God sees His creation as made by His hands, and He still sees humans as made in His image. And He wants that protected and cared for because He protects it, He provides for it, and He cares for it. So don't miss the kindness of God in this recreating scene as God is starting over with Noah. So that's the new world. Let's look at the second point, though, that you're going to see in verses 8 through 17, which is the covenant. You can see God's inclination to make a covenant with Noah throughout the text. It's all over the text, as a matter of fact. It's repeated three different times in different ways, and it's something that God started to Noah before Noah ever entered the ark. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, God told Noah that he would establish a covenant with him and his family. Now, in the Bible, that's the first time we read the word covenant being used to talk about God's relationship with humans. In Genesis 9, it's time for that prophecy God gave in in chapter 6 to be fulfilled with Noah. And notice the Lord states two times in verse 9 and 11, I established my covenant with you, Noah, and your family. And in verse 12, he says that's the co- that, that this is the covenant he made with them. God set in his mind to establish a covenant with Noah. Now, the term covenant is not a word that we would use in our culture today. You just don't hear it being used. Matter of fact, years ago when we were originally starting our church and we had a church membership covenant, I showed it to a fellow pastor who thought we were a cult because we used the word covenant. And I, I looked at him shocked and I said, brother, the word covenant's in the Bible. So because it's in the Bible and we use it, does that make us a cult? Or rather, are we just agreeing with God that these are terms that God has used? So we as Christians need to rescue some of these terms. A covenant is simply a, it's like a contract, but it's a solemn agreement between two parties before God to fulfill certain obligations. You probably do that on a regular basis in business contracts. Some of you make contracts, all of us have made contracts if you're married, in your marriage, before God and for, uh, before others. And covenants are usually finalized with a sign or a signature that says, yep, I see it, that's going to remind me of this. My wedding ring is a sign of my covenant. It's a picture of it. From this point forward in Genesis chapter 9, and in the Bible for that matter, we're going to see things about God that are amazing. We're going to see God making covenants. We're going to see God keeping covenants. And we're going to talk about God being the covenant-making Covenant-keeping God. Now, next week, just a little foretaste, we're going to talk about how God works and relates with humans on the basis of covenants. We're going to explore these covenants and just see how does God interact with us over the issue of covenants because it's really important. But for right now, notice with me, though, God's covenant with Noah. In explaining why God started this covenant with Noah, A.P. Ross wrote this. It was now necessary to have a covenant with obligations for men and women and promises from God because people might begin to wonder whether God held life cheap or whether the taking of life was a small matter. This covenant through Noah declared that God held life sacred and that humankind too must preserve life 
in the earth. God's covenant with Moses was pretty, with Noah was pretty simple. He promised to never judge the earth with a flood ever again. And the sign he would give would be the rainbow that we see in the sky. Now just think for a moment what a relief this would have been for Noah. I was, this week, I, I like to do things where I kind of try to take myself back and wonder, what would Noah have been thinking? So imagine Noah out doing gardening with his wife and they're hanging out with their kiddos and they've got a, you know, the cows are out and the whole thing. And, and all of a sudden, without this promise from God, storm clouds come and they get a drop of rain on their face. What do you think they'd have done? I know what they'd have done. Sweetie, get to the ark. Run now. And she might say, but baby, do you understand? The cows are out. Leave them. Get in the ark. Because they would not know this promise. Imagine for a moment that they had no clue, but yet God did inform them that if they felt the little raindrops on their face and they saw the rainbow coming out, that God would never again flood the earth. They might need an umbrella, but they won't need an ark. Really good news. God's covenant with Noah is straightforward, but it's very fascinating. Notice with me that this covenant is universal. It's actually to every creature on earth. You'll see this in verses 8 through 10 and verse 12. It's to Noah and his family. At that time, think about this, they were the only humans on the earth. There's eight of them. They represented, they're the only ones on the earth and they represented all of humanity. This covenant was for all humans. But notice it's also for all humans for all time. Notice that God said to Noah, for your offspring after you and for future generations. In other words, this covenant has all of the history of humanity in mind from beginning to end, from Noah's time until the end of time. But it's also for all living creatures for all time. Notice he says, you know, about the birds and the reptiles and the bears and the livestock and all the things that are on the earth, every creature, all living creatures for all future generations, every beast of the earth. God made this covenant with Noah, listen, with history in mind. You know what that means? It means that God had you in mind. And when God made this covenant with Noah, he was looking down to the ages of history and he saw your face. And he saw your dog. He saw your cattle. He saw your sheep. He saw everything on this earth until the history of time. It's a universal covenant. But notice as well, it's also unconditional. This is fascinating about this covenant. In this covenant, there are no obligations for humans. Not one obligation. There's no obligations for animals or birds or fish. There's only a promise from God that he will never judge the earth again with a flood. He will preserve it. He will care for his creation through procreation, provision, and protection. It's unconditional, and it's for everyone. But also notice that it's unbreakable. It will last for everlasting, is what the Lord says. We are still feeling the blessings of this covenant today. Aren't you glad God has not destroyed the earth again with a flood? We still marvel at rainbows. It will go on for future generations on the earth. But also notice, and finally notice, that it's all, all of it, is the Lord's doing. He established the covenant. He obligated himself to the covenant. And he put the rainbow in the sky. In other words, this covenant, Noah's covenant, is dependent upon God and God alone. Now all of that tells us a couple things that we just, we just cannot miss as we leave today. We cannot miss how God acts and how God treats all people and all creatures with common grace. We cannot miss this. 
You'll notice it's it's not dependent on Noah being a man of faith or all the people of faith. It's for all creatures, all humans, for all lifetime. The rest of eternity. Jesus tells us about common grace in Matthew chapter 5 when he said that the sun rises on the evil and the good and the rain falls on the just and the unjust. In our call to worship text this morning, we read out of Psalm 145 and we read these words. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. The eyes of all look to you, Lord, and you give them food in their due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of what? Every living thing. See, God provides for all. God cares for all in his creation in an act of what we would call common, everyday, normal grace that God dispenses. John MacArthur, in his sermon on this text, said this, this is common grace. This is God just unloading the blessings on creation. You can fall in love, get married, have an intimate relationship with your spouse, and just create the best of life and children in your grand, in your family and your grandchildren. I give you all of that, and I'm not even asking you to believe in me yet. I'm just giving it to you, and I'm giving you this plethora of options to enjoy food. That's common grace, friends. God is good to all. He is gracious to all. He gives breath and life to all. So make sure you see that in the text. This is a moment when God is dispensing and declaring and promising common grace to all creatures everywhere. God is good to all. He is gracious to all. He gives life to all in His common grace. But this covenant also does something else to us. It shows us that God is patient and merciful with His creation. I hope you'll see this. Especially those of you that are a bit agitated at the world that you live in. Especially those of you that are frustrated by all the stuff that you see going on in your world. I hope you'll see something in this to just stir you to be different. The word rainbow is a fascinating word. It's actually a word that means bow. It means an archer's bow. When you see a rainbow in the sky, you'll notice something. If you look at it now, you'll probably see it this way. It looks like an inverted archer's bow. It's upside down. It's that way for a reason. A rainbow is God's archer bow. The moment when God hangs up his bow in the sky as a sign that he is patient. And listen clearly. Now is not the time for war and judgment. Now is the time for God's grace and patience and mercy to be seen. God hung that bow up in the sky as a sign of mercy. He hung it up so that every human on the planet could see God's sign of peace. And he intended it to be to point us to the victory of God's grace over God's judgment. John MacArthur again said this in that same sermon. Every time you see a rainbow, it represents the victory of grace over judgment. What does this world deserve? Judgment. What does it get? Grace. Because this is the age when God has hung up his bow. The triumph of mercy over wrath. This is the age for us to go to the ends of the earth and tell them of God and his mercy, God and his grace. The rainbow is rooted in salvation. It is intended by God to remind us that he will never judge the earth by flood again, but also it's intended to remind us he saved somebody through grace, namely Noah and his family. 
And it's to show us that God's patience is with us and that his salvation is an act of God's grace. See, do you, do you see the rainbow differently? See, there is coming a day, we're told this in the Bible, when God will one day pick up his bow again. Only this time he will not judge the earth with water. He will judge the earth with fire. On that day, only those who have responded to God's patience toward them in this age of grace will be saved. Only those who have believed in God sending us that great Genesis 3 champion, Jesus Christ, and believing that Jesus is the one who represents us before God, who died in our place, rose again in our place, and is now seated at God's right hand, will be safe from that coming day when God decides to pick up his bow once again and fire it at humanity. Do you believe in the risen Christ? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Because the picture of the rainbow is a moment of God saying to you, do you see my patience and do you understand my grace? See, this is a time of God's patience. It's time for you to see your need for Christ. It's time when you see the rainbow, if you're a child of God, to marvel that God was gracious to you at all. Do you see your need? Do you see God's patience hanging in the bow in the sky? But there's something else I want to deposit in you before we leave, especially this for those of you that are Christians in the room. Do you see how this covenant of grace and God's patience toward his creation shows us how we should treat those in his creation. There's nothing more disturbing to me, and I think to God, than when we as Christians treat one another harshly, when we're bitter and jealous toward one another, when we fight and bicker, and when we have divisions among us. And I think there's nothing as well, even more disheartening to God, when we take that out to the world and we treat those that don't know Christ in the same light. God's common grace, God's patience with creation should cause us to do something. It should cause us to respect all of life. It should cause us to be patient with everyone. That includes the lady at the traffic light that isn't going as quickly as you would like. That includes the grocery clerk attendant who's trying to figure out the numbers of the vegetables. That includes your child in your own home when you've told them a thousand times over to stop. God's common grace and patience toward his creation should cause us to be grateful to God for his grace to us. And in turn, extend the same grace to others. You see these moments in the gospel, don't we? Forgive others as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. You've heard it said, you know, treat others as you would want to be treated. We should maybe do that even differently. That is the golden rule. But think about what Jesus actually says to Christians. Treat others the way God in Christ Jesus has treated you. So how is your patience, Christian? How is your long-suffering? Are you praying in your private room? God, would you please finally bring judgment upon this world? Are you saying, God, in your patience, this is a moment for grace would you let your grace be displayed in such power that people would come to Christ? Would you use this age of grace with that rainbow in the sky to reveal the wonder of God? Are you praying for your enemies that God might show 
them great grace, just like God has shown you great grace? See, common grace by God and God's patience to all shows us how we should treat all of all of creation and all of humanity. Let's pray. This morning as you're praying, and you've heard me say this before, if you're my church, if you have it, this is new, do business with God in your seat. Right now, the Lord is convicting some of you that you do not know Christ and you need to respond to Jesus. And to do that, we would just simply tell you, pray to God, tell him that you believe in Christ Jesus as your Savior and you want to be changed. You want to live for him and you ask him to forgive you for your sin and that you believe in Christ. Maybe some of you this morning are being convicted right now about the way you've treated your kids, your wife, your friends, your enemies, the gas attendant, the bank clerk. And you're realizing that in you, you have not responded and been a recipient of God's common grace and even special grace of your child of God, and you're not extending that. Maybe this morning you... You're finding bitterness and rage and anger in your heart because of what you see in your world. And this morning, God is calling you to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit of patience. And God is giving you new eyes to see. Father, thank you for this age of grace. Thank you that you have taken your instrument of war and you've hung it in the sky. And thank you it's a sign to us that you are patient and gracious to all, especially us. (laughs) And thank you that this salvation that Noah experienced points us ahead to the salvation that we have experienced in Christ And Lord, we, we yield our hearts to you. We respond to the conviction of sin and to the things that you're doing in us right now. So just church right now, confess your need to Christ. Confess your sin to Christ. And we turn to you because only you can transform us to live life like the risen Christ in this world. Spirit of the living God, go to work in your people. Work in us. Transform us. Apply God's word to us that we might be different and changed. For your great glory. And Lord, I pray for our non-Christian friends that are here. We are so glad they're here. I pray, Lord, that you would let them see the light and the glory and the wonder of the risen Christ. And believe that Jesus is true and real. And turn them from their sin and rebellion against you to you, to Christ, the risen one. Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.